The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. The teaching in today's passage talks about a contentment that is irrespective of circumstances and a generosity that is radical. And so let me just acknowledge what's been going on in my own heart before the Lord this week. God has made clearer to me through the study of this passage that there is a gap between what God tells us can be possible in this passage and where I actually am in real life. Now that gap that exists is convicting. It's convicting and challenging. To quote Philippians 2.12, it means I need to grow in working out my own salvation in fear and trembling as God is at work in me. But it's also very encouraging because Philippians 1.6 tells us that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So today's passage speaks to something that from a human earthly standpoint sounds radical, (laughs) impossible, unimaginable. Let's give some caveats right up front about what contentment is not so that we understand what contentment is. Contentment is not complacency. So contentment does not mean that you're happy with the status quo and you never want to see growth. In Philippians 3.12, Paul said, I press on to know him better. Thus, there is such thing as what we might call a holy discontentment. You want to grow. You want to see progress in the right things and in the right ways. So contentment is not complacency. Also, contentment is not resignation. It is not prayerlessness or fatalism or singing que sarah, sarah. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 3.10, we earnestly pray night and day to see your face. So there are things that we can pray for that are good things and long for them and desire for God to give them. All right, so if contentment is not complacency and it's not resignation, then what is contentment? I would say that today's passage is trying to teach us that contentment is completion. Contentment is the sense that you're whole, even if nothing else is given, or even if many of the things in this life are taken away. So if you never got anything else, and if some of the things you hold dearly were taken away, could you say that you're whole? If you can, you can say what Paul is saying. And the most practical evidence of it will be generosity. So look in today's text with me in Philippians 4, verses 10 through 20. Two parts for the text. The first part is contentment in all circumstances. That's verses 10 through 13. And the second part will be generosity, and that'll be verses 14 through 20. So part one, contentment in all circumstances. Paul has written four chapters already. And he finally gets to the part where he thanks them for the gift they gave him. So now Philippians 4, verse 10, look with me in God's word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Notice that Paul is thanking God for a gift that God's people have given him. Why does he thank God first and greatly? Because Paul knows practically what James teaches us, that every good gift is from above, from our Father of heavenly lights. Let's pause there for a second. Anything good you've ever received, even if it's from some other person, it's from God. 
Paul understands that, so he thanks the Lord greatly. But here he's explaining to them, previously you haven't had time to demonstrate the love that you have for me. What is Paul referring to? In Acts 16, we read of the planting of the church of Philippi. Remember, Paul is in prison. And there God miraculously releases him from prison. The Philippian jailer is about to execute himself. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that's true for your families as well. He comes to know the Lord and his family and Lydia and others. And so the church at Philippi is planted. But now 10 years go by and Philippi and Paul have no connection with one another. But now Paul is in prison again. This time he's in prison writing them a letter. And remember, as I said before, in these Roman prisons, you were not given food and you were not given clothing. So you would die unless someone gave you something to live on. And so now the church of Philippi revives their love for him. So Paul is saying, I've always known you've loved me, but now you've had the opportunity to demonstrate it to me again. So verse 10, you have now had that opportunity. But now Paul says something shocking. Though I'm thankful that you've given me a gift, I want you to know that whether or not I ever have a gift, I'm content. Verse 11, for I've learned in whatever circumstance I'm in, I am to be content. The word content here is actually the Greek word for self-sufficient. And it's odd that he would use the word here. But I think he does it to play with the fact that we tend to think of Self-reliance. Ralph Walter Emerson wrote the work Self-Reliance, and it's had a strong impact on the way we as Americans think. We tend to use words as strong or independent to positively describe the way we live. Normally, they're seen in commercials subliminally, especially if they're for Jeep or Levi's. (laughs) You're supposed to be like a self-made man, a self-starter who needs nobody else, a Clint Eastwood type, a go-it-alone sort of lone ranger. That's an American virtue. But it was a virtue for Stoicism in Paul's day as well. So Paul is taking a jab at it. Lots of people think that by being self-sufficient, you've arrived. But Paul says, no, I'm content. But the self-sufficiency he has, he's going to explain where it comes from in verse 13. But in between, he has verse 12. I've learned to be content. But I've learned how to be content, verse 12, whether I'm brought low or I'm abounding. In any circumstance, whether I'm facing plenty or hunger, whether I have abundance or need. Perhaps in principle we can relate to Paul, but probably not in particulars. Because Paul at many times was was beat, and Paul was stoned and left for dead. And Paul was stripped, and he was whipped. And Paul was shipwrecked and imprisoned, and he cared for souls all over the known world. Paul endured incredible deficit. But yet Paul says he learned a secret. What is the secret? Secret is a word used in the New Testament to refer to initiation to a private club or or group. How did Paul get this secret? Did you notice a phrase repeated in verse 11 and verse 12? It's, I learned. That's important. This is something that had to be learned. Not everyone knows it, although it's available to anyone. It's learned and it's provided, but where's the power? And now look in verse 13. This verse often shows up out of the context of what's happening in Philippians 4, but notice it in the context of what's happening in Philippians 4. 
after enduring all types of circumstances, he says he can do so, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Some translations write Christ who strengthens me, which is certainly what the verse is saying. Paul then has taken that phrase self-sufficiency, normally used with Levi's jeans or Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he says, you know that independent self-sufficiency? Actually, it's an all-sufficiency in Christ. Paul's point then is, if all I have is Christ, then I have all. So three applications for us. The first, God must teach us contentment. We're not naturally content. Even the day you come to know Christ, you don't download it automatically. Verse 11 and verse 12 said, I have learned. At Christmas sometimes, my parents, my brother, our family will buy my children toys. We have four young children at home. And so when they open up that present and they see toys, they are so excited. But I am so grieved if it says batteries not included. (laughs) And I have to put some project together over the next several hours and find some store that's open to find these batteries. This text is telling us that the moment you come to know Christ... You have all the resources, yet you do not yet have contentment. It must be learned through experience. And the experiences through which you will learn contentment will be difficult. Sadly, I could tell you from my own life, I know I am a Christian, and yet I know times when I have been discontent. Hence, you can be a Christian and yet not always be content. And yet Paul says he learned To be content in any circumstance. Notice then that the circumstances are part of the school to train you in contentment. Hence application number two. The school of contentment will include ups and downs. You know James 1, right? Count it all joy, brothers, when you endure various trials because they bring steadfastness. And steadfastness will make you complete, whole. Same word, content. God must put us through trials to teach us contentment. Andy Davis, pastor in Durham, has written a book on contentment released last year, and in it he has a hypothetical scenario. Imagine you win sweepstakes, and it's this incredible sweepstakes where you get a two-week all-expense-paid trip anywhere in the world. You'll stay at five-star hotels, eat the highest quality food, cook by the best chefs in the world. You'll see spectacular scenery, drive the most expensive cars, wear a whole new wardrobe specifically tailored to you. The trip will have everything catered to your whim, but here's the catch. You have to agree during the duration of that entire trip that you will be miserable. You will be discontent. Is this not the way many of the rich and famous actually live? Now, here's the alternative suggestion. Suppose a different offer were made to you. You will have a life that includes painful trials. You will have a life that includes great difficulties. You will have a life that includes opposition, but you will be supernaturally made to be content. Which would you choose? Would you rather be miserable in a life of luxury or complete in a life that includes difficulty. I read this week about a missionary in Tobago. On the final day of his trip in a certain leper colony, he asked if anyone had a favorite song. And when he did, a woman turned around and he saw the most disfigured face he'd ever seen. She had no ears and she had no nose and her lips were gone. 
And she raised a fingerless hand and said, could we sing, count your many blessings? The missionary started the song, but he couldn't finish. Later, someone said to him, I bet you'll never sing that song again. And he said, no, I'll sing it, but I'll never sing it the same way. Contentment is learned through experiences. Without the ups and the downs, we would never learn that contentment is not circumstantial, it's supernatural. The contentment that looks like that is not something you gain in your natural ability. Which is why application number three, God provides strength for contentment in Jesus Christ. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do, the Greek word though is dunamis, means I can be able I can have the power for anything God would call me to. The old minister F.B. Meyer wrote an illustration of two Germans who wanted to climb the Matterhorn Mountain. They went out and hired three guides, and so they roped themselves together, guide, traveler, guide, traveler, guide. And so here they are climbing the Matterhorn Mountain on an icy, freezing, wind-whipped day. And as they're climbing, the last person in their party falls and slips off the mountain, and so they all start to slip. They start slipping from the bottom up, five, four, three, two, and here they are hanging off the cliff. But they hold because the first person, the first guide, had plunged his axe deep into the ice, and therefore they were hanging by a rope, but they were secured. At the end of the illustration, F.B. Meyer said, I am the man who has slipped Christ is the man who has held me fast. Keith Getty wrote a song that I would love for us to sing sometime. It's called, He Will Hold Me Fast. The lyrics say this, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. The chorus rings out, he will hold me fast, he will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Paul has learned contentment. Because Jesus is infinitely strong, if all I have is Christ, I have all. Now the most practical demonstration that you're content will be radical generosity. That leads us to part two, verses 10 through 20. Generosity for and trusting in Christ. I love words more than most people. I'm kind of nerdy that way. This week I taught my kids catchphrase, maybe you know the game, where you hit the side and it spins different words and you have to come up with synonyms for it. I love words that are just a letter different because they have overlapping ideas. Have you noticed the word misery and miserly are just a letter different? But they have much in common. On the flip side, contentment and generosity really are connected. Verse 10, or sorry, verse 14. So Paul says, I have everything I need through Christ. I don't need the gift, but I do want you to know I'm thankful for it. Verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, verse 15, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, that is when he first was working as a missionary, when I left Macedonia, this is so staggering. The greatest missionary who ever lived, notice, no church entered into partnership with me and giving and receiving. Can you imagine? No one financially supported Paul. No one except them only. 
Verse 16, even in Thessalonica, when he was planting a church there, Thessalonica did not support him, but Philippi did. You sent me help for my needs once and again. Now, verse 17, Paul comes back, and in our English years, it almost sounds like he's belaboring the point, but it's because he wants them to know. It's not about the gift. It's about you knowing contentment and therefore being generous. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He, in somewhat witting prose, uses financial terms to describe the spiritual growth that they have through generosity. His point is that the giver is always blessed in his act of giving. Verse 18, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. I want you to notice in verse 18 that God is pleased with gifts for great commission purposes. Giving does not indebt God, of course, but giving does please God. Giving for the right purposes. Verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours. Not because he's indebted, but because he's a good father. According to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, so to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I have two applications for us based on this second part, and they're particularly for our church, for Emmanuel Baptist Church, because Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. Here's the first application for us. Emmanuel, God finds it pleasing when churches generously support the Great Commission. Uh, Let me say something. We, as a church, have the blessing of being Christians who are also part of the Southern Baptist Convention, and I want to encourage you to be maybe changing your verbiage and changing your thinking. Let us earnestly desire to not give to, but to give through the cooperative program. The cooperative program is an incredible blessing for us as churches to come together. But the reason it's a general blessing is because of the missionaries that it launches and supports who share the gospel. Therefore, we don't ultimately give to it, we ultimately give through it. And keeping that in mind, raises our desire to be great commission generous givers. I want to tell you some ways that I would love to help, hopefully help us do that. We should know missionaries by name and pray for their needs specifically. Something I did at Michigan, which was very helpful for us, is once a month we had a missionary spotlight. One of the blessings of technology is you can Zoom a missionary live, no matter where he is in the world, and the church can talk to him and hear from him. We had a deacon in our church who had great passion for our missionaries. And once a month, we moved our Sunday night spotlights up to the morning. And he would speak in the morning with fresh images from the field about what's going on with particular missionaries. We should desire to go on trips together as a church across the world. We should serve together here locally. One of the ways I love to do that is on Wednesday nights, after we turn off the video on Facebook Live... (laughs) We always want to talk in person about who we personally witnessed to recently. So on Wednesdays, we encourage one another. Here's who we're talking to. Here's who you're talking to. Let's pray for them together. Let me encourage you, if you're parenting right now, to go to the Gospel Coalition. Go to their website. Go to their app, which you can download on your television, and watch Dr. Danny Aiken preach last year when he preached an excellent sermon called Parenting Missionaries. I've watched it twice this week, once on my own and once with my wife. And in it, he gives 
excellent suggestions for how to raise children to be missionaries even at their age. If you've never read biographies about missionaries, start with his very helpful overview book, Ten Who Changed the World, and get a picture of what it's like to spend your life in Great Commission work. Let me also encourage you to do something that sounds radical, to put evangelism on your calendar. Over the last couple of weeks, the staff and I have been working through Emmanuel's calendar as a church for next year. And it is always interesting how we as churches can sometimes forget to schedule evangelism. Also, we want to remember that evangelism is not normally primarily programmatic. It is normally primarily personal. Max Stiles, who's written a lot on evangelism, was at High Point Church in Texas recently, uh, where Pastor Juan Sanchez is the pastor. And he was speaking on evangelism, and afterwards he opened the floor for questions, and one of the ladies raised her hand and said, a lot of Vietnamese people are moving in our community. What should the church do to reach them? And he thought on it for a moment. He could see in the back, the pastor was thinking, are you going to sign me up for a program that I have to establish now? But he wisely answered to her, well, what we as a church must do is be the church, which is a witness and testimony of the gospel. But as Great Great Commission Christians, the church can help aid and facilitate us to go and proclaim the gospel in the community where we are. With that passion in mind, we will be generous in our support of the Great Commission. Which leads us to a second application here, which is that God does bless and provide for churches who generously support the Great Commission. Look now in Philippians 4.19. In context, speaking to a church that was supporting the Great Commission, Paul wrote, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I hate how perverse of sinners we are, and we have a sinful tendency as Americans to take every verse like this and turn it into making God a genie who gives me the Ferrari I want. Many televangelists have abused this verse, and that makes me sick. But don't so overreact that you forget that God is generous, and He does provide when we focus rightly on what matters most, the advance of His glory through the gospel. So remember this morning that God provides glorious riches through Christ Jesus. And whenever we think about contentment and generosity, we must look up to the most gracious person in the universe, God himself. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul shares a different time when the church of Philippi was generous. It was when there were poor believers in Jerusalem. And he says that the church in Macedonia, referring to this church, the church in Philippi, gave beyond even their means. But then he says, do you know why they gave that way? Because of verse 9. And let me show it to you on the screen so that you can follow along easily. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Paul tells us this in that wonderful passage. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ... That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might be rich. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus became poor. It says he gave his life a ransom for many, and he purchased the church with his own blood. Think about it for a second. What does it mean to be poor? It means to be without possessions or security. At the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus said, foxes have holes, Birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
One of the most basic elements of security is clothing. Jesus was stripped naked on the way to the cross to show that he had no security left. Here's the person, infinitely rich, who created all good gifts, and he became poor, impoverished voluntarily, gave up everything. Why? What did the text say? For our sake. What amazing love. And he gave up his riches and became poor so that we could become rich. Here's what all the goofy televangelists got half right. God does want you to be rich. But here's the part they missed. (laughs) He wants you to be rich in the things that moths don't corrupt and thieves could never steal. He wants you to be rich in the eternal glories that are in Jesus Christ that could never be taken. He wants you to be whole with a contentment that transcends this world. See, God is good. In fact, he's more good than the goofy people ever present him to be. If you have Christ as all, then you have all. See, Jesus is the greatest gift of God. Tim Vanderveen, who is from Spring Lake, Michigan, a student at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. In the 90s, he was tall, broad-shouldered, curly, handsome guy. After he graduated, he scurried up the success ladders for Johnson Control and was off to a wonderful, beautiful, successful life. One day he called his professor, Professor Brown, and said, I'm not, I'm not feeling well. Professor Brown said, what's wrong? And Tim said, I think I have the flu. I'm in the hospital in Grand Rapids, but my parents are out of town. And the professor said, well, I'm coming by. I'll come see you. He got there, and when he found his Tim did not have the flu, he had leukemia. And he began a very difficult three-year journey. Three years later, in the hospital in Grand Rapids, room 5255, Professor Brown came to visit Tim. He walked into the room, and in the corner, Tim's mom was crying. Tim was laying on his side in the fetal position with a pillow between his knees, all of his curly hair gone at this point. Professor knelt down because Tim couldn't lean up. And the professor said, Tim, how are you doing? And through weak words, Tim said, I've learned something. He waited. It's the 90s, remember. And Tim continued, I've learned that life is not like a VCR. The professor didn't get it. What do you mean, he said. Tim continued, life is not like a VCR. You can't fast forward through the bad parts. As the professor paused, Tim continued a final time. But I've learned that even though you can't fast forward, Jesus is in every frame. And that's enough. So you remember what I said at the beginning. Contentment is not complacency. Contentment is not resignation. Contentment is the conviction and realization that you are whole. Contentment is the lesson that if you know Jesus then you will always have a God who hears you. You will always have the power of his love with you. You will always have the Holy Spirit in you. You will always have heaven ahead of you. You will have grace for every sin, direction for every need, light for every darkness, and an anchor for every storm. If all you have is Christ, then you have all, and you are whole. Let's pray this morning. God, this morning we read a passage that describes something that I have not fully come to know. Help me to learn. 
what Paul is saying he has come to know. The secret. The secret that if we have Christ, we have everything. And Lord, I know that in part, but I admit, and you know, there are times I'm discontent because I take my eyes off Christ. So help everyone here who's a Christian to know that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whether I abound or whether I'm abased, whether I have hunger or whether I have plenty, if all I have is Christ, then I have all. But perhaps someone's here this morning who has been blinded to the sufficiency of Jesus through the lies of Satan in this world. And they've been led to think that they could complete themselves through something in this world. But Lord, help them to see the world passes away and the desires thereof. But God and Christ endures forever. So Lord, help them today to call out on Jesus Christ to be their everything. And to find that if you have him, you are complete. In his name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.